Kia ora, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. This is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter for paid subscribers via my substack called The Kaka. It is Thursday the 14th of July, and I wanted to look more closely at a chorus of calls for more temporary migrants to come and solve some of the problems we're having this winter and more generally um, help try to address the uh, cost of living and inflation crisis that we've got at the moment. So just over the last week or so, we've had uh, hospitals, schools, employer organisations, including the Employers and Manufacturers Association. We've had the opposition leader, Christopher Luxon, and many other employer groups and some consumer groups calling for a much easier uh, set of rules for bringing in migrant workers. The government has obviously over the last couple of years uh, initially been unable to allow uh, workers in because of the restrictions at the border for COVID, but in the last three or four months has reintroduced a set of rebalanced immigration settings, which do make it harder for people to bring in people uh, to work in lower skilled jobs at relatively low wages. So there's now a new scheme, which started at the beginning of this month, called the Approved Employer Visa uh, Scheme, which means you have to uh, get a tick of approval from Immigration New Zealand to be able to import workers, if you like, uh, to be sure that you have checked that there are no locals available for the job and that you're in a position to treat this worker fairly. And in a lot of industries, uh, although not all, and um, there are some temporary exemptions, the idea is that people can only come in if they're being paid at least the median wage, which in New Zealand at the moment is $27.76 per hour. Now, this is about 30 percent above the minimum wage at the moment and this is uh, making people uncomfortable and unhappy and about a third of those who say they want to be able to employ migrants are saying that they couldn't do it and also afford to pay them that wage of $27.76. Now, at the moment, the government is pushing back and saying, no, we want to try to lift the skill level of migrants. We want to give better chances to locals. We want to do a lot more training of locals. And we want to avoid the sort of high migration, high nominal GDP growth economy we had before COVID, which the government believes helped press down on wages and meant that Uh, Some jobs were replaced uh, by where some workers, New Zealand resident workers, were replaced by immigrant workers. The Productivity Commission's report from a couple of months ago pushed back at some of those assumptions about immigration always and everywhere pushing down on wages and also displacing local workers. The Productivity Inquiry found mixed evidence. Um, There were some areas where there were lower wages and displacement. Other areas, there were higher wages and no displacement. And it noted that um, at the moment, 
immigration is not necessarily the way to improve productivity. It's the jury's out on whether it actually does improve productivity. Some areas it does, some areas it doesn't. And certainly uh, there is um, plenty of need for new workers. We've got an unemployment rate of 3.2% and you all will have heard over the recent weeks the massive problems in hospitals where elective surgeries have been cancelled, A&Es are full, problems with all sorts of services, delays, empty shelves, cancelled flights, the whole lot. It feels like a polycrisis coming together all at once into this crescendo of demands. Let the migrants in. And Christopher Luxon has returned back from overseas, a, a research trip overseas to say, let's be outward looking, uh, open, less negative, let's open the migration tap. Although he does note that uh, New Zealand would have to be careful when it does that to ensure that we've also dealt with the infrastructure issues. And this is a really important one. Today I want to talk about levers. The big call, of course, is to pull the migration lever now and hard. And the idea is it would uh, uh, produce the labour which gets rid of these delays and cancellations get, and gets rid of these delays and cancellations and also uh, keeps some downward pressure on wages and therefore prices. Uh, the idea being that we're about to have a wage price spiral and that inflation is the number one enemy, that the cost of living crisis is what we should be focused on and one way to address it is to bring in lots of new workers from overseas to fill these gaps and also maybe to take some of the pressure for significant wage increases off. Uh, that's understandable if you're an employer and you don't want to invest in changing your business to be able to produce the same with fewer people. Uh, it's not so great for existing employees who'd quite like a big wage increase. But obviously, um, taking some of the general pressure off the economy right now would be a great thing. And there are many people who are frankly exhausted after two and a half years of COVID dislocations, having to work with uh, staff shortages. Um, everyone's a bit buggered and would like the idea of some migrant cavalry coming over the horizon. However, uh, this is potentially a problem if it's done without pulling the infrastructure lever as well. And this is where we have a problem. I actually think there's a real chance that Labour, in desperation before the next election, will pull the migration lever on its own. And if it doesn't, there will be a change of government and National will do it. The question is, will either of them, or both of them, decide to pull both the migration and the infrastructure levers at the same time. And uh, I think that's a, that's a good opportunity. Uh, however, neither of them are looking to pull the infrastructure lever at the scale that's necessary with the funding that is necessary anytime soon. So let's back up a bit. A few months ago, the Infrastructure Commission came out with a very detailed and heavy report into the scale of our infrastructure deficit and also the future amount of infrastructure spending we'd need given our expected population growth. And the key thing is expected population growth. For the last 20 years or so, the, the official expectations have been just plain wrong. 
The, the official expectations back in the early 90s and again in the early 2000s were that New Zealand's population growth would be relatively slow. At that point, before the early 2000s, we had had relatively slow net migration, in part because so many New Zealanders had left or were going to live in Australia. And so we were just um, treading water to keep up in many ways. We also had an ageing population, and the theory was an ageing population plus not too much migration would mean relatively slow population growth, and therefore we didn't need to invest heavily in infrastructure. It was also convenient, of course, that not investing in infrastructure meant that we could um, build a low-tax and relatively low-footprint government and avoid any sort of capital gains or wealth or land taxes to fund any infrastructure spending. So that was convenient. Of course, in the 2000s, both parties, uh, in the early 2000s, from 2000 to 2004 or 5, and then again really from 2013 to 2019, we saw both parties unleash significant amounts of new migration under pressure from employers and because there was plenty of jobs growth at that point, and that increased our population growth to the fastest in the world. The trouble is, uh, unlike, uh, as Kevin Costner suggests, build it and they will come, our approach was, come on in. Oh, we've forgotten to build it, and we don't really want to pay to build it, and therefore uh, suddenly our house prices has, have risen, we've got congestion problems all over the place, we've got shortages, delays, waiting lists in hospitals and schools, and um, whoops. So this is obviously a problem, and Labour, uh, once it was elected in 2017, initially talked a pretty good game about trying to restrict migration and spend some more on infrastructure. In the end, it did neither. So in 2018 and 2019, we had another explosion in temporary migration and the infrastructure spending, it was increased, but not nearly enough. And in part because the government realised it couldn't do the infrastructure spending without also increasing the deficits and the debt, both of which are impossible under the bipartisan 30-30 model that I've talked about earlier in the week, i.e., no one wants to increase taxes to help service the higher debt or be subject to the complaints from the opposition when you do increase the debt. So uh, we've had this high migration, high house price, low wage, low productivity growth economy built up until COVID. And then COVID hit. And by necessity, the migrants couldn't come anymore. As it happened, an awful lot of money printing helped keep the house price rises going. And wage growth stayed relatively low up until the last 6 to 12 months when it started to heat up again, in part because the uh, initial instinct to just employ migrant workers to deal with any staffing shortages was not uh, physically able to be done because the borders were closed. And then in recent months, the government has restricted that. Now we've got everyone screaming at the government, let them in, let them in, and I think either the government will do it or National will do it. But I think before they do it, and before the next election preferably, 
they should get together and come up with a new deal. Effectively, a bipartisan agreement which allows both the migration and the infrastructure spending to happen so that we avoid the mistakes we made in the last couple of decades. Now that may sound like a tall ask. Politicians don't like doing deals with each other in public. That makes them look like they're giving something up and giving it to an opponent. No one does. However, there is a long history of this being done in New Zealand, and it's just worth reminding people that we've got all sorts of these bipartisan arrangements and deals that have been done over the years. Starting with the big kahuna, really, which is the New Zealand superannuation um, truce, which means that uh, neither party will try to extend the retirement age too much, neither party will means test or uh, target the New Zealand superannuation payment. Both parties have agreed to keep the payment at around about two-thirds of the um, average weekly wage for a couple, and and also um, no plans to try to either claw back or or, uh, do any sort of um, asset testing of New Zealand superannuation. That ended a pretty nasty debate that went wrong right through the 1990s. Secondly, uh, we also have this grand deal, if you like, that we've talked about time and again, the uh, 30% net uh, debt and also 30% uh, size of government, 30% of GDP, and which effectively means that income taxes remain relatively low and that uh, GST stays relatively high and that we don't have a wealth or capital gains or land tax to tax uh, uh, income from capital gains. And uh, that's the deal that was done um, almost by accident and by convention rather than any explicit statement, although there, there have been explicit statements, for example, on New Zealand superannuation. And there are a whole bunch of other things as well. So um, when you look at the bipartisan agreement, which is not to um, privatise our health system or the primary or secondary uh, school system, that's pretty much um, no touch. And um, there's a whole bunch of other things. The most recent being, for example, the medium density uh, uh, residential um, standards for uh, increasing the density of cities. This was a deal done between Labour and National in the dead of night, which none of the councils are happy with, but certainly um, was in favour of uh, development of more apartments and townhouses. So deals can be done. And it's worth looking at what type of deal would need to be done so that both levers could be pulled in a bipartisan way and avoids the uh, downsides of just pulling the migration lever on its own. So let's have a look what you'd need to do. Because... We have an idea now from the Productivity Commission and the Infrastructure Commission on the scale of the issue and also some of the potential tools that we could use to deal with these issues. So the Infrastructure Commission came out and said, uh, we underinvested in our infrastructure to the tune of about $100 billion over the last 30 years. And we know this. Uh, We can see it every day. Uh, In Wellington, it bursts out of the pavement and um, makes you very wet and hopefully not too smelly. Uh, We are obviously underinvested in infrastructure, $100 billion. 
That's right now. That's before we start increasing our population. The Infrastructure Commission reckons that at the current forecast, the official forecast, which by the way are significantly lower than what we've seen in the last 10 years, at the current forecast we'd need another $100 billion to ensure that our water quality standards, our carbon emissions uh, and all sorts of other things are both um, safe and uh, sustainable and um, essentially uh, functional. Uh, that we don't have too much congestion, that we have the water uh, infrastructure in place, that means we have clean water and we can start to improve some of the water quality of our rivers and lakes and oceans. And so um, that's $200 billion that we have to spend if we're going to do it properly and we don't have the same the massive infrastructure shortages that we have at the moment. And that $200 billion, remember, is with a relatively low population growth forecast. So if you were to unleash the migration, as Christopher Luxon would like to see, and along with a whole bunch of other um, employers, and not just in the private sector, in the public sector as well, if you were to unleash the migration and you went back to 100,000 a year, let's say over the next five years or so, that's another 500,000 people in the country, uh, even with a bunch of leakage, uh, brain drain type uh, um, leaving by New Zealanders, you're still going to have a big increase in your population. And uh, that may be fine if all you're interested in is increasing congestion and increasing house prices. And there are a bunch of people who stay at home <laughs> and aren't too keen on commuting anyway. So um, just quite like the house price rise, thank you very much, and the cheap Uber and the cheap um uh, restaurant meals. So, um, you know, for some people, fine, go for it. There obviously are a few sensible people who realise that uh, 500,000 extra people in five years without um, enough infrastructure spending would be pretty disastrous. Again, from a housing affordability point of view, but also an emissions point of view, congestion point of view, uh, pretty much it, uh, waiting lists for hospitals, surgeries, the whole thing. That would be a recipe for an omni-crisis in our public services, transport, health, education, the whole caboodle. And the councils won't be paying for it, by the way. So uh, what would it look like to actually spend the $200 billion? How could we do it? How would we fund it? Who would pay for it? Well, you have a few options here. Uh, you could just spend the whole $200 billion and you could borrow to do it. Uh, and you would need to probably have some sort of little tax that you put on to service the extra debt that you built up over the next 30 years. Let's say it was $200 billion. That, by the way, is about 75% of GDP right now. We currently have net debt of around about 30% of GDP. So 100% of GDP according to most of the analysts and certainly the politicians at the moment on both sides, would be unsustainable. So $200 billion, too much. And in fact, Grant Robertson has actually said that in response to the Infrastructure Commission report. He came out and said, well, we can't afford to do that. That would mean a doubling of infrastructure and uh, other investment in the economy from about 15% of GDP to 30% of GDP. What he was saying effectively is to do that, we'd have to... Uh, both increase our debt massively and find some sort of new tax or significantly increase taxes. 
So, you know, the obvious response will be, why, why don't you put a capital gains tax on or a wealth tax or some sort of land tax? Uh, that would solve it and actually help redistribute some of those unearned gains uh, into infrastructure, which would help improve the well-being of everyone, not to mention the productivity of the economy. Well, as we've seen, wealth taxes are not very popular and they've been ruled out forever by the Prime Minister while she is Prime Minister. And Labour, I think, would be very unlikely to go into the next election with some sort of uh, wealth tax or capital gains tax on the agenda, even if it did have a different leader. And so the real issue becomes, uh, how do you do all this and not have a new tax or and not have lots of new debt? Sounds like some magical thinking going on there. Well, there are a few things that could be done. And here's the types of policies you could do. That mean you don't have a big tax increase, you don't necessarily have a huge debt increase, but you also manage to accommodate the extra people, and you do it without uh, putting out too more too many emissions, and you do it in a way which is safe as well. It would involve a significant change in the way we live. It would involve enormous amounts of mode shift in our big cities. I'm talking here about people getting out of their cars and getting into buses and the trains we have, plus jumping on electric bikes, scooters, buggies, using new uh, cycleways, new uh, walkways. And to do that quickly and relatively cheaply, what you'd have to do is effectively convert a whole bunch of lanes on roads and motorways and roads into low-traffic neighbourhoods, walkways, cycleways, those sorts of things, properly separated uh, affairs where people were confident they could send their kids off to school on a bike and they wouldn't be run over by a truck, and and also uh, making sure that they have access to these things relatively cheaply. So subsidised bus fares, obviously the success of the half-priced um, uh, public transport that we're seeing at the moment gives you a sense of what you could do there. There's a proposal for fees fares free uh, from the Auckland mayoral candidate, Efeso Collins, which has been supported by others around the country. And you could easily uh, um, put in a whole bunch of uh, subsidies for electric bikes and electric cars, electric double cab utes, uh, to, sure, to ensure people will get, not just get out of their cars and onto bikes and walking, but also that they get out of their dodgy old, smelly, belchy, old petrol and diesel vehicles and into electric vehicles so that we can uh, hit our carbon reduction targets. So uh, you'd have to have this mode shift and you'd have to have a bunch of public subsidies for people who are heavy users or would be heavy users of buses, trains, cycling, walking and that sort of thing. You'd also have to give up some of the road space which uh, is a difficult thing to do for a bunch of people who are used to a particular lifestyle, living in the suburbs, driving around in their SUVs and their double cab utes, bouncing from school to work to shopping centre to movie theatre all over the place, and to do it quickly and without having to sit in a traffic jam for long. Um, that is a big change, and it's a cultural change as well as a physical change. And you'd need to have a whole bunch of incentives and subsidies to do it anytime soon. However, um, what you can do is do that fast and in a comprehensive way and not have to build some of these really expensive and heavily emitting projects that we've got on the go at the moment. 
So, for example, let's get Wellington moving was uh, agreed or proposed, uh, a preferred option a couple of weeks ago. $7.4 billion is the cost. It would involve brand new, quite big tunnels through Mount Victoria for new roads and uh, dedicated busways through those tunnels, um, converting the existing Mount Victoria tunnel from a, a tunnel for cars and buses to uh, cycling and walking. And you'd have a new light rail line that went all the way from Wellington CBD to Island Bay. An awful lot of concrete and steel and digging and emissions going on, an awful lot of um, attempts to get this through the RMA, an awful lot of submissions and objections and uh, um, disruption for all those people who still need to get to work along those roads and uh, tunnels. And as we've seen with the um, Central Rail line in Auckland, enormous disruptions to small businesses in the sort of day-to-day life of people, these huge projects, not to mention very expensive and they always blow out in cost. And the combined cost of Let's Get Wellington moving and the what's called the Auckland Light Rail Project, which actually is the Auckland Heavy Rail Project with a whole bunch of big tunnels, again, through the likes of Mount Albert uh, to avoid um, having Dominion Road uh, ripped up for 20 years. Uh, that is a twenty. That is a 14.6 billion at the moment um, cost. So combined, you're talking about 20, over $22 billion in costs for these two projects, which, by the way, won't be completed for 20 or 30 years and don't really solve any of the infrastructure issues that we've got at the moment. They also don't reduce carbon emissions anytime soon, which is when we need to do it. We need to do it in the next eight years, not in the next 28 years. So a deal could be done here where Labour and the Greens agree with National and ACT to give up on these big projects. National and ACT already want to stop them, have said that they would stop them if they got a chance, Uh, uh, although National would also like to spend some of that money on brand new motorways, and in Wellington's case, uh, drilling the big tunnels purely for cars. Uh, And uh, you would see a significant um, reduction in the total cost because you would uh, quickly convert these uh, roads to cycleways and walkways and busways, invest in a lot of uh, electric buses, extend the uh, subsidies for bikes and buses and trains, put extra trains and buses on the existing routes to improve frequency and capacity, make it reliable, so a lot more bus drivers um, paid decent amounts and comfortable buses with air filtration, by the way, so that uh, people do get out of their cars and start to live different, more active uh, and less petrol fumey and diesel fumey lives. And at the same time, with that uh, shift towards a more mobile, uh, urban lifestyle, you would see, along with the densification, a lot more affordable housing generated in and around those bus routes and cycleways and walkways. And uh, we've seen the success of that in various cities overseas, and not just the ye olde um, European ones with um, cobblestones and castle walls. We're talking you know, supposedly conventional modern cities that are reasonably sprawly and were built mostly for cars, becoming much more uh, livable. 
And uh, at the same time, of course, you reduce the um, costs of living for those people who are currently paying a lot for petrol. And if, particularly if you subsidise their public transport and give them electric uh, vehicles, as long as we can keep electric pri- electricity prices r- reasonably low, uh, that would be a win-win for everyone. Uh, there would be things given up, and that's the nature of a deal. You win something and you lose something, and at the end of the day, everyone is happier, although none of no one is completely happy. So, for example, Labour and the Greens are pretty set on their big project, Auckland Light Rail, and uh, and also light rail in Wellington. Although interestingly, the Greens are not that uh, keen on the idea of these big tunnels for the emissions reasons and the cost reasons. And uh, also, um, Labour and the Greens uh, would have to um, uh, not just uh, give up the spending, but uh, would have to, you know, agree to um, a whole bunch of extra subsidies for things like um, double cab utes on farms and suburban SUVs, so that you might not have the extent of the mode shift that you perhaps expected. And uh, on the other side, National Act would have to give up on their big motorways and the tunnels for those motorways and uh, convince their own voters that a shift from the uh, Kiwi lifestyle of living in the suburbs, having two cars, one of which is a double cab ute, the other is an SUV, to drive around with petrol and diesel, spending a lot of money on petrol and diesel and having very, very expensive houses is probably not great for anyone in the long run, particularly if you want to see your kids grow up and and your grandkids grow up in New Zealand. So uh, there is is a deal to be done here. I have a bit more detail about what that deal could look like. Remember, this is my suggestion. This is my particular pipe dream. But actually, uh, I have included in more detail in the email newsletter the um, the ways in which it could be done, but also the moves that have already been made to suggest these things. And they include things like uh, congestion charges and mode shift. The Productivity Commission uh, also wants to see a proper uh, agreed plan, and it should be a bipartisan plan, a government policy statement, which effectively says, we agree we're going to have this sort of population growth, and we agree we're going to make sure we build the infrastructure for this sort of population growth. The Infrastructure Commission is also very sceptical about all these really big um, tunnel-heavy projects because they're expensive, they take an awful long time, and they uh, they generate a lot more emissions over the life of the project. So um, there's also pretty much agreement in the policy community that congestion charging is what's needed. And any deal like this would have to have some sort of truce where neither side attack the other for proposing a congestion charge. And both Labour and National have been pretty keen on the idea of congestion charges, as is ACT. So there is room to move on a bunch of these areas in a way in which you keep the debt relatively low, you keep the new taxes relatively low or non-existent, you move quickly to uh, walking and uh, cycling and subsidised bus and train route, but you don't necessarily build honking new uh, train routes. And you also use subsidies for uh, scooters and bikes and electric cars and electric double cab utes to ensure that uh, some of the benefits are distributed into the provinces and the rural areas and that also those people who really, really can't get by without a car or an SUV uh, can have them and um, 
feel like they're part of the game as well and that you buy the social license in a way to allow a just just transition where people who really need to reduce their transport costs and their housing costs can and it's not objected to by people who say I don't want those other people getting my taxpayers money. So there we have it. There's a there's the particular issues we face. How do we pull both levers at once? How do we come up with a bipartisan deal which would achieve this in a politically sustainable and believable way? And um, is there any chance of it actually happening? Now, uh, the uh, cautious cynic in me says, probably not. Um, usually the parties uh, uh, retreat to their own tribes and the usual um, thing happens where the really difficult things aren't spoken about. A whole bunch of magical thinking is thrown out there and everyone hopes it's believed. The things that need to happen don't actually happen. And a bunch of people who benefit from the current system continue to benefit and those who don't leave the country. And uh, that is the most likely outcome, to be fair, uh, because that's the where the... Uh, the weight of momentum is headed. However, um, you never know, and certainly there are plenty of positive signs out there, and win-wins are good for everyone. And at the moment, we have politicians who are reasonably open to these sorts of discussions, and we have recent examples where they've done it. Just think of the medium density rules. And Christopher Luxon is a different kettle of fish to the previous national leader, and has himself said he is open to new ideas and isn't necessarily doctrinaire about things like uh, never using the Crown's balance sheet to solve these issues and never using congestion charging. So um, I think there is a you know a non-negligible <laughs> chance that these sorts of things could be happen could happen. And it's part of my role is to throw these thing out things out there because remember I'm unelectable, unemployable and unappointable, and uh, uh, my job is to um, be independent and come up with the accountability and the suggestions for change with a focus on housing unaffordability, climate change inaction, and child poverty reduction, and all of these issues completely relevant and crucial in those outlooks. I'd like to thank uh, all of the paid subscribers to the Kaka who allow me to do this sort of work, and uh, I'd welcome any suggestions and uh, approval for distributing this more widely. Uh, because I think this is a debate we need to have and I'm a nice, safe um, person to throw that out there and walk away, so to speak, spray and walk away. Kākite ano. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. This has been the Dawn Chorus on Thursday, the 14th of July. <laughs>